Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests who are authors, poets, and scholars about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are what's the author responding to, what are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience, whose interpretations matter, what could be a miscitation, and how language is used and constructed. Before I get into the show, I'd like to tell you about a podcast I think you like. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America. Since 1850, they've provided readers with a unique perspective on the issues that drive the national and international conversation. They have been home to some of the most distinguished and distinctive voices in literature, from Barbara Ironreich to Wesley Yang. Join host Violet Luca along with her colleagues, as well as contributing writers, as they do a deep dive into these issues every week. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack at harpersmagazine.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Mai Nardone, a Thai and American writer whose work has appeared in American short fiction, Granta, McSweeney's Quarterly, Plowshares, and elsewhere. He lives in Bangkok. Welcome Me to the Kingdom is his first book. So my, I want to begin by asking you about your writing process for Welcome Me to the Kingdom. How I read it was that the stories could be read as standalone pieces, but they're recurring characters and family histories that haunt the narrative trajectory. Did you always envision it to be a story collection? And I'm really curious to know why you titled it Welcome Me to the Kingdom, which is a story that appears nearly at the end. Yeah, it did begin as a story collection, and it it sort of finished as a story collection, despite some discussion I had with my editor, who, just to point out kind of how differently editors and writers think about text, it was fascinating to me where we were talking about this, because it is a linked story collection, and we were wondering if we should go the way of like A Visit from the Goon Squad or Olive Kittredge, these kind of novels and stories. And she mentioned the fact that I have characters who come back in different forms and styles. And so I might have a character who is in the first person at one point and comes back in the third person. And those sorts of decisions ended up shaping the way that the story collection came out. And I was making decisions that were based on individual stories. And so when the collection came together, even though, and I love this word that you're using like haunting, even though there are these characters that kind of haunt the collection that are carried through the collection, there was enough variety that it made more sense to have it be a story collection. I guess on, on like point of origin that you mentioned, so in college, and I tell people this a lot, and it's something that I'm still growing out of, but in college, I studied economics and not creative writing, and I thought that I would end up in some related field. So when I was writing kind of after college, and even in college and kind of in my family history, there, there's a big financial crisis in Thailand that happened in 1997. And that was sort of like a formative moment for my mom's generation and her siblings who were like middle-class Thais. Um, and it's something that I studied in college. So when I started writing this book, I wrote starting in the 97 financial crisis. And I thought that the collection would kind of unravel and that would be like the eye of the storm around which the collection would cohere in the same way. There are some like similar story collections that I was modeling it off, like one called In Other Rooms, Other Wonders by Danielle Moynadin, which is about kind of like the failing landowning patriarchs of Pakistan and kind of changing hands. So welcome me to the kingdom. The story, was it written before you decided to title it or 
how did that piece become the the titular? Yeah, the story was written before that, and it was one of those those mm-hmm. uh, titles where, when I was writing that story, it was a line of dialogue I think in the story that I then picked out for the title, and then I, I liked that. Because of the me, instead of just welcome to the kingdom, the me, it makes it sound like either a plea or a demand. Like one of the main characters in the story collection is like me, mixed race, Thai and white, Thai and American. There are kind of these boundaries that are drawn sometimes around like Thai nationalism and sort of exclusionary practices of if you're half Thai, like how how Thai are you? And so I felt like I was writing into the space of Thailand and this title kind of was reflective of my process of writing the book. It was interesting in that story because the story is also about one or either two women who are trying to find their way in the world and figure out their identities. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like lost and meandering and wandering. And then on a more kind of business sense, I think it helped that a story collection about Thailand had you know, the word kingdom or something that would kind of signal where we are. And in this mm-hmm. vein, I got, you know, a very maximalist Thai cover as well. So everyone, everyone knows. And can we talk about the cover? It's really stunning. Almost everything seems like it derived from the stories. I see Elvis. Did you have any input about the, the cover or? Yeah. It, it's just so remarkable to me that the cover is so striking. Yeah. And I had input kind of after the ideas were kind of presented to me, but I love that the cover designers, the art directors, they found a Thai illustrator, a Thai artist who had made the original image and he does a lot of collage work like this. Two of the covers that I was presented actually were his work and they took those and then they, you know, arranged titles around them. And then they brought in some of these story elements. But some of the things that are on the cover that I love, which are mm-hmm. just part of the original, is there's this plastic bag with Coke, like Coca-Cola in it, <laughs> like hanging from one of the mm-hmm. letters, which is, it's sort of a, it's a throwback to like my childhood in the 90s, I guess. It probably existed before that when vendors in Thailand, because they were getting soda by the the glass bottles in these crates. And so when they sold you it, they would tip the soda into a plastic bag with ice and give you the ice so that they could recycle the bottle back to the factory and get money for it. It's something that obviously like disappeared as soon as like plastic bottles and cans became the norm. And so you don't see it at least in Bangkok anymore. But I just love that there are these like throwback elements in there. Were you born in Thailand? I wasn't. I was born in the States. um, And then I moved, my family moved to Thailand when I was about three. Yeah. Oh. That's still pretty young in life. Yeah, too. yeah. My sort of most of my memory is um is Thailand. I lived in the states. I went to college there. I went to MFA there, and then I kind of stuck around for a couple of years. I get an interesting question sometimes of why I don't write stories that are set in the states, and it's because I just don't feel like I have a handle on the country. You know, I lived in like a college bubble. I lived in a university bubble, and I just don't feel like I have like mm-hmm. a sense of belonging over there. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because it's yeah. one of my later questions. <laughs> um, also find it really remarkable to note that the stories, at least based on the table of contents, when I was going back to look at the timeline, it's told rather linearly. But then the last two stories kind of disrupt that since the linearity. City of Brass takes place in 2016, but the penultimate story, English, is set in 1974. And then the final story, Tumboom Brigade, is set in 2014. 
So I want to ask you, what were you thinking about mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. here? Yeah. You know, my poor agents and then my copy editor had to sort of go through this with me, but I had one working spreadsheet chart that I was working off that had like dates and timelines and stuff like that. And my agents originally helped me align things and put things together. And and later, my poor copy editor went and made like a supercharged version of this, which was, it just looked like a lot of work when I looked at it, just to make sure that that sort of chronology and time and characters across the collection everything lines up and she did an amazing job. And there were things that I didn't even realize that she kind of brought up. When I was talking with my agents about how to kind of organize the collection, um, a lot of the chronology was just so that for people who are reading it kind of from cover to cover, there is a sense of like a story that is larger than just a regular story collection because there are these narrative arcs that are carried through. It seemed like there were three main narrative arcs. There's one with this woman, Nam, and her husband, Rick. And then later, their mixed-race daughter, Lara, who like, takes over their story. There's a story with these two boys who grow up through the collection. And then there's another story with a Thai Chinese woman. Kind of, She starts as a girl and, and kind of the peripheral characters that come into that, like this Elvis impersonator. And so we wanted there to be a sense of book ending by the time you got to the end. And for... The first story arc, the character that we started with, which is Nam, never has a story that's from her perspective necessarily. Like a lot of the other characters kind of have their own stories, and she was the only one who didn't have a story herself, and yet her story kind of underpins the collection. And so it felt like we needed some sort of bookend for her, and so we decided that what that looked like was maybe returning to the point of origin for her, which was um, this very early story. And then the final story, The Tambon Brigade, which is set in 2014, and it's the end story for two of the characters, Ben and Tintin, two boys. And it just has this kind of elegiac feel. I mean, the story kind of ends on almost an elegy in a song. My agent, particularly Rob, he, he felt like that was one of the stronger narrative arcs, and he wanted to end on those characters. And also because the story collection kind of opens up at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, now that you mentioned it, I'm looking through your table of contents and because the way you wrote the stories and then the main characters, it looks like the only three characters who get kind of their own focus narratives is Ping and Exit Father, Pinky and Make Believe, and Tintin mm-hmm. and Handsome Red, and then everyone else is kind of mm-hmm. companioned yep. in the stories. Yeah. And and even some of the companion stories, like the first story, Labor, or the second last story, English, mm-hmm. they both say P and Nam, but those are both told from P's perspective. And so mm-hmm. some of the characters kind of take like are foregrounded and some are not, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. On the topic of time, and I know we kind of talked about this when you said you study mm-hmm. economics in college. Is that is that considered political science? Um, yeah, well, right. so I did political no, science too, and I was even worse at that. Like econ, <laughs> I was good at, but okay. but poli sci, I really, I really didn't uh-huh. understand. Yeah, so I've I've uh-huh. done both actually. <laughs> I I want to ask you to elaborate on the economic financial backdrops of Thailand because the story collection spans at least four decades. Um, so, like you said, the collection begins with P and Nam's labor stories at the beginning of the nineteen eighties. 
And I want to maybe emphasize the work culture and the hard labor that you strongly explore in all the characters. As a reader, there's a sense that tourism, including sex tourism, um, plays a large kind of backdrop in, in the stories. And then there's some very lovely descriptions of kind of industrialization. I remember it was at like an abandoned mall and there's two characters, young boys. Were, I don't know if they were looking or you're describing this kind of like old mm-hmm. movie poster of cowboys. I mm-hmm. thought that was really striking. Um, so I see a connection to your critiques of capitalistic notions of labor and maybe a sense of travel writing because there's a strong element of ruins impacted by urban Western developments. Were you interested in writing a counter-narrative about a specific image of Thailand as a tourist destination? And maybe this is my academic background speaking, but did you find yourself engaged in background research as you plan your stories? And why did you begin in the mm-hmm. 19- 1980s? Yeah. Um, yeah, the 1980s for Thailand was sort of the beginning of the period of urbanization, globalization. It was sort of the making of modern Thailand. It's when, just to get into the weeds a little, society became less agrarian, more manufacturing based, and like the middle class grew. And I guess for my mom's generation, that was the coming of age when they were entering the labor force and kind of entering this this world of new economic possibility anyways, even if politics throughout this period is is kind of marred by frequent coups. So that's the beginning of the economic story and the first story in the collection and even the prologue kind of reflects that where these are two younger characters who are coming from the countryside to the city for opportunity as people might have been doing or would have been doing at the time. And they're looking to kind of like join the new urban workforce as was happening. I wanted to kind of reflect some of these historical economic trends that were going on. I knew I was kind of working up to the 97 financial crisis, which is sort of the moment when, you know, by the time we got there, Thailand had experienced some of what at the time was like the East Asian tiger growth. They had like tapped into that double digit economic growth and everything was looking good. You know, I was born the same year that the Berlin Wall came down. And I think that that period, the early 90s for Thailand, especially, it really did look like an end of history kind of environment, whereas like the West's economic liberalism is won, the World Bank is pushing deregulation. And the result of this is that a lot of money came into Thailand very quickly and created the the circumstances which led to the 97 financial crisis when a lot of this money then left the country very quickly. It was sort of the end of this era of promise. And so the first part of the collection, even though it's not that explicit, the characters are sort of like going through this economic history. When I read your story collection and the year 1997 kept recurring, I realized I don't know a Mm. lot about Thai history. I have family who Mm. are Chinese and I have family who used to live in Hong Kong. Of course, I thought about the 1997 mm-hmm. handover. And I wonder if, because Chinese communities are portrayed in your in your story mm-hmm. collection, did that somehow impact the economic financial crisis? In, yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Like, Both my grandparents were born in China. And so my mom is, is Chinese Thai, which nowadays is a fairly common thing. But in her childhood, it's the kind of thing that you might have been made fun of for and she talks about this explicitly actually of being like an outsider because she was 
the child of Chinese immigrants, whereas by the time we get to 1990s, this is being normalized and the Chinese who are considered more like the merchant class who came in and they started a lot of the industry are becoming more powerful. And nowadays you look around Bangkok and nobody blinks if they say that, you know, their grandparents are Thai Chinese or something like that. It's just like, it's assimilated, it's normalized. They took Thai last names. Um, and the, the financial crisis that started in Thailand in 97 spread throughout Southeast Asia and then East Asia as well. And so it sort of just was like a wrecking ball through the region in most other countries, not as bad as in Thailand. So there was some of that history. And I have a story exit father that's about um this child who mm -hmm. grows up in a thai chinese family and the different pressures and kind of the cultural saving face and things like that where one of my friends who's also from Batu chinese descendants talked about recognizing some of these tropes in his own grandparents do you read a lot of tribal writing especially when it centers Thailand? um i have so just just to plug one of my friends who wrote this great essay in this regional literary magazine called the Mekong Review, my friend James Yu wrote an essay where he he did a survey of foreigners writing fiction about Thailand, which is fairly common. And there are a bunch of big names, like obviously Paul Theroux, because he is a travel writer, but he wrote this pretty convincing long short story or novella that I read. I remember even as far back as something like the 1950s, I found this this piece of travel writing that was published in The New Yorker. Um, totally blanking on the guy's name now, but not somebody that I've ever heard of before and since. He described coming to Thailand in the 1950s as part of like a larger travel writing expedition. And it's fascinating how little has changed. He has this metaphor of... Um, coming into Thailand and sort of going into these expatriate bubbles of, you know, I guess it was still early days for the multinationals, but there was a lot of like resource extraction, like timber and things like that. And then obviously the various embassies. He describes the environment of the expats as being kind of like at a party where everyone's had a little bit too much punch and they should go home but the band is still playing. And so they just kind of get caught up in the mood and nobody really leaves. And they just like are still, you know, life is easy and they're just dancing and they're enjoying the mood and they've kind of forgotten the environment that they're in, which to link this all back together, kind of that the story in the collection about the 97 crisis, I called it easy because the father who comes into the country earlier in the collection, who's an American man who, works in finance and has more means, him and his friends, his white friends are talking mm -hmm. about how it's an easy country for them to live in. Um, for expats, expats. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I have friends who have traveled to Thailand. It's, it's like, if you were to just kind of quickly do a discourse analysis, it's usually the same kind of descriptions like they always get the tattoos yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the long needles right. and the temples and, and and they they talk about the very visible sight of sex sex mm -hmm. sex workers um when you read and hear about these kind of stories i'm curious to know what your response is yeah usually. now they're sort of aging out but the sex work districts the red light districts in bangkok 
that are catered towards foreigners, especially like Westerners, are relics of U.S. Army bases in Thailand during the Vietnam War in the same way that it happened in Philippines and other countries. There's obviously like that history. But the other part of that is that it is a country with very visible and very ubiquitous sex work, you know. And and what's Mm -hmm. fascinating is there's like the entire spectrum. There's sort of just like little karaoke bars where it's not necessarily sex work, Mm -hmm. but men go there to sit and drink and they have like a woman who sit and basically get drunk with them and make them feel good about being there all the way up to like the very high-end quote-unquote gentlemen's clubs with their like big VIP rooms. And so there's a lot of it. It's ubiquitous. A lot of it is actually frequented by ties. So the other thing, I guess, when I was writing this collection was thinking about like how, like you said, like this is how Thailand exists in the global imagination. And even more recently, I saw the Netflix show, The Serpents, which is set in, I think, the 70s. But, you know, there's movies like The Beach, there's movies like The Hangover 2, and it's all kind of wrapped up in this Mm -hmm. idea of like Thailand being an exotic destination, a place of peril, and a place with a lot of sex work. And so it felt, if I were writing this collection, not to touch on any of these images of Thailand, whether it's just like a self-image or an image imposed by the outsider, that it would be somehow disingenuous. And so... That's why I was kind of like writing into the spaces of sex work in Thailand, but trying to kind of upend the narrative that currently exists as well. Yeah, that's why I thought it was really striking that it was very labor oriented. And also when you you had the uh, Rick and who was his friend? Like, yeah, the way they didn't actually acknowledge the labor, it it felt very Mm -hmm. real to me. And I also really like the focus on, I feel weird for saying economics, but now knowing mm. that you were an econ mm-hmm. major, that makes a lot of sense about the kind of the humane touches that you provided throughout. Yeah. The other economic story is that there's still, even today, it's like a, a class with like very few opportunities for the middle class. And at the higher end of sex work, even the people who are more just like, you know, in these very expensive clubs, the women who will just sit with the men and like, serve them drinks and whatever. I know that other cultures, especially because I've read novels about it, um, like in South Korea, there's this salon room culture, which is quite similar, which is like businessmen going and sitting in these places and being served. But a lot of the women and the men also in these industries can make a lot of money. At the same time, it's pervasive and it persists. Part of the reason is that like people get trapped in these economic stories where it's like, well, if I can make you know, three times as much as I was making in an office, then why shouldn't I be here? Why should I go back to office work? Why should I go back somewhere else? To go back to the the kind of expansive communities that you portrayed in the collection. So we have American travelers who, I said temporarily stay, but I felt like Rick did want mm-hmm. to stay in Thailand, but then he eventually left. Um, you also had some stories and insights about ethnic Chinese and Muslim Thai communities um buddhist practitioners so here we have an image of a pluralist thai society but i felt your stories were quite dark and the characters they Mm -hmm. seem to be in Mm -hmm. despair and i don't i don't mean to say like they were always unhappy but there were some very very Mm -hmm. emotional burdens that the characters had what are you trying to say about these different religious communities? And can you elaborate on Nam's decision to join mm. a cult, which I thought was a very 
And uh, I felt I felt many ways about it when I read the yeah. story, but could um, you elaborate? Yeah. So about the sort of the pluralism, it, it's funny, you know, even coming from the U.S. Or, or a country that is much more pluralistic, whereas in Thailand, Thailand is nominally something, you know, I think on paper, it's something like yeah. 94% Buddhist or something, which encompasses people who are just born into it, who go once a year on their birthdays or on the new year or something to make merit um, and kind of like curry favor for whatever this life or the next life. So the minority populations are generally very small. And like I said, the, the biggest one is the Thai Chinese population, which has been very much assimilated. And mm -hmm. so that isn't thought of as other so much. And there are kind of smaller like Thai Indian communities, but in the south, there's a couple provinces that are Muslim up against the Malaysian border are Muslim majority um, provinces that dates back to whenever there was wars and they were drawing the borders and things like that. And so you have a lot of separatist kind of tension back there. And in the early 2000s, the government handled this really poorly by trying to crack down. And there's just like frequent unrest and frequent trouble between mostly Buddhist kind of governors and rule and police and majority Muslim citizens who aren't feeling like they are being represented in the country appropriately. And so um, the Muslim character they have is an abortionist and she kind of comes up to Bangkok and she kind of mm -hmm. plays the role of like the ostracized Thai person, especially because the Buddhists are all looking down on her because of her practice and being a Buddhist country, mm -hmm. you're technically not allowed to have abortions, even though the laws have changed. So there's some of that. And then the different religious communities, some of that is is sort of a reflection of how strange Thai Buddhism is and how kind of encompassing. Like it really is this um, mishmash, big umbrella, big tent religion where, you know, growing up and going to different temples, you would see Guan Yin, the Chinese deity, and you would also see, maybe not in the same temple, but sometimes someone like Ganesh, the elephant-headed Hindu deity in Thailand is just sort of like incorporated both into its Buddhism. And even the epic myth of Thailand is the Ramakien is the appropriated Ramayana myth. And so a lot of those Hindu deities also make it into Thai folklore and they're kind of adapted. And so it's this interesting mishmash. And there are a few of these the equivalent of like an American mega church, but a mega, um, you know, Buddhist community temple things. Yeah. And I still haven't seen it actually, but there's like a documentary on Netflix on them, the Tamakai, um, you know, they're often called the cult, a Buddhist cult, but they have this very visually stunning temple that looks kind of like, if you ever look it up, one of their main areas it almost looks like a UFO has landed there and it's like a golden domed UFO with like thousands of monks sitting on the steps. Um, and the, the complex is so big that when you fly into the old airport on the outskirts of Bangkok, you can actually see it from the sky. <laughs> like it looks like you're flying over Disney world or something. Wow. It's just like this huge area. My mom, when I was growing up was Buddhist and um, there's just sort of a lot of practices that people are kind of making it up as, as they go is what it feels like. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. You know, Nam, Nam doesn't think it's a cult. She just thinks it's sort of like a Buddhist therapy yeah. group where you, where you get to like 
yeah. like launder your karma almost and come out the other side feeling better. And so that is mm-hmm. just kind of a reflection of some of the more zany sides of yeah. Thai Buddhism. Nam, I really like Nam's character and or the way you wrote her. I, I and I feel strange for saying that because is she is she the mother who was on the phone with her daughter and mm. like like the daughter mm-hmm. is estranged from mm-hmm. Rick and Nam and. There's that story really pulled mm-hmm. on my heartstrings. I just felt like Nam was one of the really tragic mm-hmm. characters. Was she was she a couple with mm-hmm. P mm-hmm. yep. too? The relationships are yep. not clearly you don't spell out for the reader. So I thought it was really interesting the way that you um depicted how relationships mm-hmm. kind of move. Yep. I guess I don't like everything to be clearly defined in fiction writing. And so I really love the kind of these questions that I had about people's relationships. Mm. Did they fall apart? Did they, did they, did they maintain? And I, I guess I wonder what, what was it like for you to create mm. this kind of distance? Yeah. I mean, I think the character of Dom was like, as, as you said, sort of, she does have this, this sad trajectory. And, and a part of that is like writing around. So in Thailand, especially around mixed race children, there's all these stereotypes where. Mm-hmm. A lot of women, Thai women who are married to foreign men, foreign white men usually, especially of my mom's generation. Now it's becoming a little more normalized, but they they are looked down on. They're looked down on as being like sex workers. My mom has all these stories about basically about shame, about like, you know, waiting for my dad in a hotel lobby and somebody coming to shoo her away and telling her that she can't come make a living around here as in like she can't come look for clients around here or something like that and these sorts of stories so it's gone for her to the point where she's kind of internalized this shame where when she is in certain environments in thailand now because she is an english speaker because she looks you know chinese she pretends she's like singaporean or something like that where she just refuses to speak thai and i believe it she gets a pass for a lot of things. Like if you're a Thai and you want people to treat you like you're very expensive, then you have to dress in a way that's very expensive. It does have a lot of surface kind of culture like that. And so for her, if she speaks English, she's immediately like taken outside of the class system, which is similar to how my English works as well, where like I can code switch and I can sort of like pass back and forth within the boundary, depending on if I want to, and if I am speaking Thai or if I'm speaking English and seen as an outsider. And so Nam's character was sort of like channeling a lot of these emotions and the the trouble, Mm -hmm. I guess, that she has with her daughter is her daughter also reckoning with that shame that she's inherited from her mother. Mm -hmm. Now that you brought up um, America Mm -hmm. and and co-switching, and it goes back to a, a different part of the conversation earlier when we talked about your unwillingness to write about America. So America is often eluded in the stories. Um, Laura, who is Nam and Rick's daughter, spends some formative years in the U.S. And she has a set schedule, which includes attending graduate school there. Was it like she wanted that or was it her parents who wanted her mm-hmm. to? Yeah, I mean, to, maybe both. Yeah, But all your stories are primarily centered in Thailand. If there are characters who've left, there's a sense of longing or nostalgia. So what is the role of nostalgia in your stories? And where do you locate the American dream in your stories, if yeah. at all? Yeah, the American dream is sort of interesting in that it 
it's the American success story that they were telling in that in that period we were talking about yeah. earlier of like the nineties, right? This again, this end of history yeah. globalization for the win, neoliberalism is winning out. So that like definitely exists in this country and especially nowadays with social media. I think it's social media, but the um the status symbolness of Thailand has been like supercharged. Like also some of it is just money, but when I was a kid, if you saw a supercar on the streets of Thailand, it was like, wow, oh my God. Whereas now you go to any of the downtown malls in Bangkok and it's like one Ferrari after another or something. And it's even more outrageous than when you see them in the US or these countries, because in Thailand, there's an extra tax on, you know, the bigger the motor or the more expensive the car or whatever. And so each of those supercars that we're seeing probably costs like three to four times as much as they do in the States. And so you're counting like three Lamborghinis for every one Lamborghini or something. And there's just this like huge ostentatious and and part of it is it's just pervasive. You know, the, the Chinese are like this new money is like this. Mm-hmm. So it goes. Um, but a part of it, I think is also adapted from that American dream of like opportunity of capitalistic success where they've sort of made it by the terms set by neoliberalism in the 1990s and before. It's as if like they took that story that the World Bank was giving them and the IMF was giving them. And it was like, okay, we're going to run with this idea. And for the people for whom it's it's work, the super rich, it's great. And then for a lot of the rest of society, it feels often like there are these mediums as there often are in different countries of like, controlling disenchantment, controlling unrest and controlling sort of like class hierarchies. So for example, this is this is where the two characters, Benz and Tintin, come in a lot because they're born orphans in a slum. They're poor and they're constantly trying to reinvent themselves and make it into society. And they're almost like constantly failing. So they go through crime, they go through sort of this recycling thing that they have. And then Tintin at one point enters um chicken fighting, cockfighting, rooster fighting, um, and, and the gambling that happens around that. And then finally, at the end of the book, they're in the stage where it's almost like for Tintin, especially he's, he's kind of given up on reinventing himself in this life. And he's just doing this activity where he gets karma for the next life. So he's trying to bank up as much as he can. And I feel like their story is sort of representative mm-hmm. of the modes of, of crowd control that exist in Thailand. So it's funny, you brought up social media. Was that, I'm trying to remember, did any of your stories? <laughs> no. Um, it comes in, yeah, it comes in yeah. super briefly in like a couple of the stories where they're young people because all, all of, you know, East, Southeast and South Asia, skin whitening culture is really huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I even on Twitter, you know, when I published one of the stories that was in this collection, I just put out a bunch of photos of what my commute on the mass transport, the SkyTrain looked like at the time. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, one skin whining ad after another. This is kind of the world that I'm trying to describe. And, you know, you go to India, Mm -hmm. you go to China, it's the same thing. So there's a little bit of social media in that, but I haven't had to reckon with it just because I stopped in 2014, 2016. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because... 90s, at least in the U.S., you know, that was kind of the first major mm-hmm. wave of the mm-hmm. dot-com mm-hmm. boom. But I like that. I actually like that you didn't talk Good. about social media <laughs> because 
like little bits are fine because um the center of the 1997 crisis as being the major impact mm-hmm. i learned something from it instead of having to think about oh no we're talking about america yeah. in the 1990s about their first wave mm-hmm. of silicon valley and so i thought it was a really refreshing kind of historical mm-hmm. take yeah. on a different kind okay. of global okay. crisis <laughs> <laughs> if, yeah, my, yeah. if my opinion means anything because I think about science mm. and technology a lot I actually consider skin whitening creams as a form mm. of technology that's too that's interesting yeah yeah but you know I'm a boring old scholar so can't do it with the media systems <laughs> Um. So, so maybe this is more about your situatedness as a writer you're a Thai American writer and you're based in Thailand and it's my understanding that you predominantly mm. write in English. Is yeah. that right? I wonder what your experiences in the literary scene in Thailand have been. Can you write or do you write in Thai as well? And how has your collection been received in Thailand? Yeah, yeah so I'm Thai American. I grew up here and I went to international school and then I went to college in the States. I don't have like any Thai education. And so my my Thai, it's, it's like a common joke out here, but like I can read fine. And that's something that I had to learn myself because I didn't have it in school. Now I'm at I'm at the age where I'm reading books. More recently, there have been more works of Thai literature in translation, and even more just to talk about the Thai scene. More people writing. Where for a long time there was like a couple guys who were kind of the old guard, some social realists and some not, and they produced most of the literature. And it was translated, but there were maybe you know like a dozen names, probably less than that, less than ten names that were circulating. Whereas now you're getting more people writing in English, but also more people writing in Thai who are being translated. There's one particularly prolific and good translator, Mui Pupok Sakun, who, um, who does a lot of work with Tilted Access Press out of the UK, who obviously published great things. And she is sort of like a one-woman force in you know, bringing literary Thai work into the world. I don't write in Thai, I just write in English. So this is also the only language that I could have written this book in and related to that even the idea of like a reception in Thailand is is sort of fanciful because obviously like you have to be able to read English to be able to read this collection in the first place Mm -hmm. it's not the kind of thing that's Mm going to have a very wide appeal and so I think the people who are reading it are foreign educated Thais and then foreigners who live in Thailand or Mm -hmm. are coming through Thailand. Is English a pretty popular spoken language in Thailand? I suppose those speaking yeah, it's um skills. It's it it is in the sense that it's a big tourist country, and so there's sort of that baseline mm-hmm. English in a lot of the tourist industries. And you know, it's not like Japan; it's very easy to get around Bangkok using just English, mm-hmm. or almost anywhere in Thailand, really. Like you can get by with English, but that it's also not a country with for better or worse, like the colonial history of Malaysia and these other countries where they do speak English mm-hmm. a lot more fluently and even parts of India because of the colonial history. So Thailand, it's it's sort of like an in-between. And even if there were enough people, I don't think they're not picking up, you know, literary short story collections. It's a small but growing scene. Yeah. Yeah. Are you working on any current writing projects that you could talk about? I'm writing another economic stories. I'm I'm writing kind of from the other end of the spectrum in this novel where I'm writing about super rich ties, which I've already kind of touched on. I like wealth inequalities are bad in the US, but in Thailand, they're bad. And they're also even more extreme. 
One of the funny things about super rich people is it starts to look the same wherever you go. Like it's certain handbags, it's certain cars, it's certain, you know, like lifestyles, like yachting and all this sort of thing. And in Thailand, being able to do that means even more of a wealth disparity than say in the US or something like that, where somebody who has a Lamborghini isn't earning like 20 times what a middle-class person is or something like that as happens in Thailand. And so it's like, talking about some of these huge wealth disparities and looking at a more like contemporary Thailand, Bangkok that's set around now. And this is, you, you said it's a um, novel? Yeah, it's no? a novel, which, um, yeah, my <laughs> editor will no doubt think before I hope. I, I am trying to figure out it, how to write within, you know, one or maybe a couple of characters for very long periods of time. But it's more cohesive. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a single story and it looks at some of the trends in Thailand. The other thing that Thailand has become famous for in recent times, to speak of super rich people, is medical tourism. What I found out recently, actually, is it it's from all over the spectrum. But generally, it's it's thought of as a country where the rich Saudis and people like that will fly to Thailand to do their healthcare over here because we have very good private healthcare that is relative to where people mm-hmm. are coming from, often cheap. Um, even sort of rich people from Myanmar and rich people from Cambodia. Um, they come to Thailand for their healthcare, and at the other end of the spectrum, that's also happening. I found out where um, women in the in the Philippines who want to get gender confirming surgery will come to Thailand to do it because somehow Thailand has these clinics that offer some of the cheapest gender confirming surgery in the world. There's just a lot kind of in this territory of like health tourism, super rich people, and then all of the the kind of the class markers that go on, which it's funny because during the pandemic, I was reading, I was bored and reading a lot of Agatha Christie, uh, as one does. And I started to notice with these kind of these upstairs, downstairs novels that there's like a lot of parallels with 19, you know, early 20th century UK with contemporary Thailand and what the super rich households look like because they have their entourage, they have their drivers, they have their maids, they have the extended family all under one house. So it's sort of like a perfect environment to explore some of these class divides and tensions. So I would like to say once that book is out, the novel, we can <laughs> talk to. about it because it sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Um, I watched your window go from light know, to dark. Right? This is, so it's the, it's thank the you transition, so much. the golden hour is behind you now. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's usually the opposite. Like I was telling you earlier, I, I'm usually in the dark, but now it's really sunny. So thank you for your time. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview. And I hope thank- you keep in touch. Yeah, thank you for having soon. me. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.